Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Kia ora and welcome to episode 6 of From Zero. I'm Russell Brown. In this episode, we'll look at why it's so hard to do the right thing, when the right thing is keeping young people alive. It seems likely that at this summer's music festivals on both sides of the Tasman, there will be drug checking to let people know what they're taking and whether it's dangerous. Senior politicians and police officers think it's a good idea. It's also illegal. The spring weather hasn't quite come to the party, but this is the sound of summer on the way. The Auckland radio station Base FM is holding a party on the rooftop of Ridges Hotel to help kick off Splore, one of a cluster of festivals and dance parties set to run over the summer months. Good festivals are organisational marvels. Whether they run over one day, like Laneway Auckland, or three, like Splore, their owners have a duty of care for thousands of people some of whom will need more looking after than others. People take recreational drugs at music festivals. That's been true for as long as there have been music festivals. Everybody knows it. But talking about it, that can be tricky. Underworld in 2003, the big day out, singing about the most problematic drug at music festivals, alcohol. It's associated with violence, injury and overdose. It's also the one almost every festival is expected to provide. There have been exceptions. Phil O'Sullivan reporting for One News on The Gathering on New Year's Eve 1997. It's called The Gathering and gather they did. Enthusiasm not blunted by four-hour traffic jams and they came from all over the country. We can have more. Christchurch. Wellington. It's the festival's second year and it's growing in popularity, attracting nearly 8,000 ravers and nearly 100 DJs from here and overseas. Unlike most New Year's Eve spots around the country, there's no alcohol allowed at the gathering, and that and the isolation mean there's no police presence here either. But what these people do have is energy. Or perhaps that should really be ecstasy. Ecstasy, or MDMA, has been making people's dance music better since it entered popular culture in the late 80s. It keeps those who take it on their feet and dancing. It's also an intactogen, part of what Wikipedia describes as a class of psychoactive drugs that produce experiences of emotional communion, oneness, relatedness and emotional openness. So in general, it makes you nice. It can also occasionally kill you. 
In the nearly 30 years MDMA has been used in this country, there have been three ecstasy-related deaths. But we live in a complicated world. When the United Nations cracked down on the precursors used to make MDMA, its success had an unintended consequence. A whole range of new drugs flooded in to fill the gap. All of them less well understood, some of them markedly more dangerous. The age of new psychoactive substances, or NPS, had begun. This year's UN drug report identified more than 700 new drugs in use. The NPS list grows by about 100 a year. Back in 2008, festival goer Wendy Allison took a step. She bought a reagent pack, a basic testing kit that identifies the main recreational drugs. Her intent was to determine whether the ingredients of the recently banned BZP party pills were being sold on the black market as ecstasy. So I got myself some reagents and basically started testing things for social social group. Um, discovered that pretty much nothing was what it was supposed to be. And then in 2014, I was at an event where some pills were going around, dubbed the black pills. Some of them were apparently legit, they were MDMA and people were having a great time and the other ones really weren't. And people were ending up having eight to ten hour sort of almost psychotic breaks and the medics were the ones who were dealing with this and they said something has to be done. And so I essentially went, well, I have an idea and I negotiated with the event and they agreed to tolerate our presence essentially and so we went along and started just quietly putting about that we were offering this service and testing people's substances. The results were fairly shocking. Fewer than 20% of the pills or powders tested were what the owner believed they'd bought. We actually found in the first year that about half of the people who found out their substance wasn't what they thought it was decided not to take it. So I actually thought that was a pretty big deal because normally when people intend to take a substance, they take the substance 100% of the time. This immediately convinced half of the people not to. And I don't know of any other intervention that actually does that. So in, in... in terms of reducing harm or potential harm, that's immediately half of the people have been taken out of harm's way. So they acted on the information? They did, they did. So we had people trying to give us their drugs. We don't want this, take it away. We, of course, can't do that because that puts us in possession of God knows what. Um, but we have seen people dump their stuff out on the ground in front of us and this year we're actually thinking about having a little jar with acid or something in it that people can just drop their stuff in and it's destroyed straight away because we are not really able to safely provide an amnesty box without support from the government Um, but we can destroy stuff for people. So here's the interesting paradox the the objection to doing what you're doing testing is is that it treats as a fait accompli, the, the fact that people are going to have recreational drugs and, and in some way condones that, and yet the effect of what you did is that a substantial number of people decided not to take drugs. Yes. Um, frankly, I think that being concerned about whether or not we're condoning the use of drugs is actually, for want of a better word, the height of arrogance, 
because people are going to take drugs regardless of what the government thinks. And the situation we're in at the moment is if less than 20% of the drugs that people are taking are what they think they are, then they're being put in harm's way by the government. So <laughs> they're not condoning drug use, they're just condoning harmful drug use. For drug-checking supporters, things have become more urgent. Powders and crystals currently being sold in Auckland as MDMA are mostly something else. And NBOM is a particular concern. 25-I-NBOME, to give it its proper name, is an easily produced substitute for hard-to-make LSD. Almost everything now sold as LSD in New Zealand is the far more dangerous NBOM. This year, a 21-year-old in Christchurch, identified in news reports only as Michael, spent 10 days in a coma after taking NBOM sold as something else. His kidneys shut down and he very nearly died. Wellington Emergency Medicine Specialist Dr Paul Quigley explains the difference between the two drugs. The problem with NBOM is that it's both hallucinogenic, it was a derivative of the CB class of drugs, so it gives you this hallucination component, but it actually still has some amphetamine-like properties. So patients taking it get tachycardic, so a high heart rate, their blood pressure can go up very high indeed, uh, and then when mixed with other drugs they can get this hypothermic drug reaction going on, so they start to cook as well. So now you're seeing the praying mantis that rules the world, but you're seeing it when you've got the strength of 10 men. So these are the guys that kind of come in uh, that are having to be held down by three or four policemen and stuff because they've just got so much energy and strength and yet hallucinating. So it's what in the States they saw with uh, PCP and things, which never really got into our market. But, you know, these, these people you can kind of multiply taser and they still keep coming at you. LSD doesn't do that. LSD has no particular cardiac uh, effect on your heart or blood pressure, so you tend to hallucinate, but again, have this ability to be mellow or even be directable. And when we get people with LSD, we just quietly direct them somewhere quieter and, uh, and help them settle down, whereas someone on MBOM is not directable. Like you can't get through to them. Are you also seeing this thing of... Because uh, I've got the impression it's happening in Auckland of people thinking they're buying MDMA crystal or MDMA powder, which used to be relatively reliable mm-hmm. as being that uh, and often, is now often not that at oh, all. Yeah, uh, you've got no idea what you're getting as the white powders. Um, and again, this is, so this is again the classic example where you get this mismatch between what the patient or the buyer thinks they're getting uh, what they, even the dealer thinks they've sold them, and then what we know, perhaps if we do some blood tests. Um, it, the white powders can be anything at the moment. They can be anything from, as I say, the catenone range, so the so-called bath salts. You know, and that, that's just a media name for, you know, the fact that it comes out looking as crystal lumps, but you smash them hard enough, they just become another powder. So uh, they're out there. Um, and then uh, uh, ketamine. There's a lot of ketamine being sold as MDMA. Uh, ketamine's a completely different drug. Um, uh, and then there is the uh, MDMA analogues, of which the most dangerous of them is PMA um, uh, and things. And they, it's all out there. We've, the, my colleagues at ESR have had hits on all of those sort of things. 
MDMA at one stage in New Zealand was very, very hard to get. Um, it was most likely that your average Eki tab was actually just some caffeine. You might as well have gone off and bought an espresso uh, powdered together with baby milk powder to make it sort of bind together and a good-looking pill. There was no active component in it whatsoever. And then mephidrome came out, and there was quite a bit of mephidrome on the streets. Uh, and then at one stage some of the white powders we had here were definitely PVP alpha, which was confirmed both through some forensic testing but also with the police here in Wellington getting quite a big seizure of it. A lot of these new ones also, they, they seem to be vasoconstrictors. So yes, yeah, so the ephedrine-based class, yeah. yeah. So ephedrine was used in World War II as a, uh, basically to help stop bleeding if you got wounded and so on. Um, and by constricting your blood vessels, it also that's how it puts your blood pressure up because literally it centralises your blood pressure by shutting down the, the things. And um, yeah, so ephedrine is the, the, the sort of the, the original compound which they've then synthetically altered uh, to, to get these different effects. You're listening to From Zero, a seven-part podcast series on New Zealanders and drugs. I'm Russell Brown. There's one further problem, although it's less of an issue in New Zealand. Too much MDMA. When it cut off the supply of a key precursor for MDMA, Safrol, the UN created the space for dozens of new drugs. But about two years ago, a German chemist found a way to make MDMA without Safrol. There is now a trend in Europe for pills to contain what it says on the label, just far, far too much of it. David Caldicott, emergency consultant at the Calvary Hospital in Canberra. That's an excellent point. And in fact, most of the evidence that we have to that effect is actually coming from pill testing programs in Europe at the moment. So whereas you or I, were we so inclined, if that was the sort of cultural background where we came from, um, 75 milligrams of MDMA would be a perfectly adequate uh, amount of drug to get us where we would consider going. Um, What is being found um, in pill testing programs uh, throughout Europe are um, products that contain 200, 300 milligrams. Um, and, And that is, in its own right, enough to get you to me um, in a professional context. Now, in Australia, I'm sure New New Zealand folk are far more sensible than Australian folk, but in Australia, there's a sort of a binge culture, both for alcohol and drugs. And there is an overwhelming tendency to double drop and to triple drop. And you'll just be dead in the field. You won't even get to me if you, you know, take three times 300 milligrams. That's a fatal dose. If Wendy Allison and others do conduct drug checking in New Zealand this summer, and they will, they'll be doing so in an area of some legal peril. I asked Associate Health Minister Peter Dunn about that. I need to say it's not legally permissible at this stage. I think in terms of a compassionate and innovative approach, uh, it's a logical step forward. And I'm very keen to see if that takes place, and I I can't be in a position of condoning it or or, or otherwise, but if it takes place, I'll be very keen to see the results. Because it does seem to me that at the end of the day, what you want is a position where people are using drugs, be they legal or illegal, in the full knowledge of the consequences. And I think uh, one of the really sad areas is people who end up with pretty serious problems and it's uh, if only they'd known what they were doing and what they were taking. So to that extent, there's a certain logic to drug testing in that way. That's almost the great 
problem with, with any harm reduction idea is that it can be seen as condoning drug use. Yeah, and I think we've got to get away from that. I think, I think that's where the, the rhetoric, and New Zealand never really adopted it, but the rhetoric around the war on drugs failed. And if, if you actually go back, I, I saw President Nixon's original comment about the war on drugs, and it, was a very, it wasn't in the way that it's portrayed. It was a very specific war on suppliers out of South America. Uh, you know, the, you know the, the Escobars and all those other sort of legendary figures. So, but it got contorted into this thing about the sort of this, you know, reefer madness, war on drugs, all that sort of stuff. Um, but I think one of the things in New Zealand we never did was go down that path. But nevertheless, we, we haven't made it easy for people who have been drug users to come forward and say, I need, I need help here. Because there's always been that risk of a legal stigma. Superintendent Virginia Labar, Police National Manager Organised Crime, is also sympathetic. We've discussed that with the Drug Foundation and myself personally with Ross Bell. And uh, it is, like, if you look at the law and legislation, you know, it, there's a fine line there. So I'm not in a position to give a legal opinion around that. You know, your sense tells you that possibly it looks like a good thing to be able to do that. It's around the maturity of growing through that and with our laws and legislations. Um, I think internationally, um, my understanding from the Drug Foundation, that it is utilised. So, you know, these are the challenges we face and you know, it's the be safe, make people safe in our community. So that, that is some maturity around that. An alternative to drug checking has been tried. For the past seven or eight years, Australian police have essentially tried to scare people straight, posting teams with drug dogs at festival gates and even at railway stations near venues. The results have been disastrous. The WA coroner has found teenager Gemma Tom's ecstasy death at the big day out was an accident. But he said there was inadequate medical care available at the festival. Rebecca Munro reports. Gemma Tom's family want the 17-year-old to be remembered for the safety changes sparked by her death, not for the mistake she made. I'm really proud of her. I love her. She made a terrible mistake, but I couldn't ask for anything better to come out of this situation. The teenager died from a fatal ecstasy overdose at the 2009 Big Day Out Festival. The coroner found the event organisers had met all the necessary guidelines, but the medical facilities at the time were still inadequate. Gemma was treated by Tony Holding, a first aid volunteer at the festival, but was allowed back into the crowd. The coroner did not lay blame on the volunteer but said things could have been different if a qualified paramedic nurse or doctor was on site. Gemma Toms died in 2009 after taking the three ecstasy pills she had with her all at once because, her friends said, she was spooked by the prospect of drug dogs. In 2013, a young man called James Munro died the same way in Sydney. Not our fault, said New South Wales Drug Squad Chief Nick Bingham. People have to be responsible for their own actions. You can't blame the police for going out and policing a venue for trying to stop people from taking these substances. If they go, if they're willing to, as you say, stuff these pills down their throat before they even go into the venue, that's hardly the police's fault. A study conducted by Australia's National Drug and Alcohol Research Centre found the presence of the dogs did encourage punters to risk taking all their pills at once and also caused them to go for ecstasy, methamphetamine and other drugs instead of the more sniffable cannabis. 
This year, New South Wales Premier Mike Baird and his Police Minister Troy Grant have threatened to prosecute anyone carrying out a proposed drug-checking trial at festivals in the state. Dr Caldercott, one of the backers of the trial, says he is undeterred. So New South Wales, my understanding is the Police Minister um, who has resigned, I think, as Deputy um, um, Chief Minister uh, but remains as police minister. I think he thinks he can prosecute doctors. Um, the the key thing about prosecuting anyone is that they need to be guilty of a crime. And um, prior to making that uh, allegation, he probably should have conferred um, with, well, I guess any legal advice at all, um, because it's quite clear in our mind, and indeed in New South Wales Police Association's minds, that those conducting testing well, they can't be prosecuted because they're not committing a crime. Where do the police in general stand on this? Are there, are there public and private positions different? Very much so. Ed. You probably are familiar with this situation yourself in New Zealand. Um, the the lay police officer, the beat cop, completely gets it and understands it. Like many, I mean, many of them are parents of young people who go to um, the festivals. Um, and you really have to be quite out there these days um, or really not across what we're about um, to oppose what we're suggesting. So I think most of the, the uh, law enforcement folk who take a public position of opposition are largely those who are paid to do so because they have some sort of political um, role as well, or those who, uh, in fact, really don't understand the principles at all. Advocates have declared that if checking is blocked in New South Wales, they'll distribute thousands of reagent kits as a protest. There are two problems with that. One is that the kits won't come with the advice on caution and moderation that's a key part of drug checking practice. The other is that they mostly contain sulfuric acid, which is not something you want anyone to be juggling around in the dance tent. Things are very different in Britain. George Watson has worked at festivals and in nightclubs there and seen drug checking in action. There's queues, you know, people will queue for half an hour to get their drugs checked, which is great to see because obviously people are thinking about it more, taking, the respons- taking their own responsibility for their actions, which is great. And if that means that festivals have to spend less money on first aid and you know, potential deaths, then that's great. And I've worked at festivals where we've had drug deaths and it's horrible, you know. And 16-year-old, I worked at Reading Festival uh, a few times, managing a campsite there. And three, three years ago, yeah, three years ago, 17-year-old male died from ecstasy overdose in his tent. And luckily, I didn't have to tell his his, his next of kin. But you know, that's awful. You shouldn't, you know, you, you should. Parents should feel safe that their kids are going away to enjoy themselves and have a good time safely. You know, no one wants to hear that news. You know, uh, from someone just trying to enjoy themselves. John Minty, who owns the Splore Festival, had production team members at Secret Garden Party, which in July became the first British festival to make an agreement with police allowing drug checking. He thought it worked. It was endorsed by uh, local constabulary and, and health department, and I think that's the key thing for, um, for festival owners, is that they want to have a, a good presence, a good public profile, and you don't necessarily always want to be highlighting the negative aspects of your festival, which could relate to people drinking too much booze or taking too many drugs. So to get sort of health um, officials and police on board is the, is the key element. 
and I think that you can make progress very quickly here in New Zealand. I think all festival owners would sign up if they had those endorsements. So what's the hold-up then? Well, I think the hold-up is that for festival owners, we're sort of waiting for the service to be provided. Uh, there needs to be someone to take that um, initiative to come and approach festival directors and say, look, we've got the OK, we've already done our research on it, we're happy to have it. It's a case of someone fronting up and saying, right, we've got the drug testing equipment, this is the service we can provide. New Zealand Drug Foundation Director Ross Bell told me he's keen to see it. So the practical thing we think we can do is to let people who are using drugs know what the hell they're using and to stay safe. And so the idea of drug checking is to test people's drugs um, and let them know, well, you thought it was ecstasy, it's not, or it's high-potency ecstasy, so have a quarter. You know, um, And it's a real practical way of keeping people safe and stopping people from dying. And the behind-the-scenes conversations we've had with people like the police and politicians is that they would welcome this kind of thing. The law may be a bit of a barrier, but let's let's see what flexibility we have to, to, to do this this summer. And of course the intriguing thing there is that, that underlying all this is a, is a tacit acceptance that people at music festivals will take drugs. That is, that yes, exactly, um, and, and that's a good thing, and, and it shows the pragmatism and humanity that actually New Zealanders are very capable of showing. We've, we've showed it before with being one of the first countries in the world to have a needle exchange program for injecting drug users. But this, you know, if this debate was going to be a more public debate, I'm, I'm not sure that we would have that level of comfort. I think you would get what they're having in Australia right now, um, uh, people saying, no, this condones drug use and we're going to shut these things down. In the UK, a major nightclub's just been shut down when it tried to have harm reduction approaches. The, you know, Some of the police uh, commissioners and ministers in, in Australia right now are saying, no way is this going to happen on our watch. Um, so I think we still have to tread carefully. Um, it, we, we think these uh, drug checking services will happen this summer. Uh, but I don't think we're going to have a whole lot of people celebrating that. I think we are still, you, you know, this could go either way. You know, you could have people coming out against this. You could have individual police officers who, who, who don't want a part of this. And so, you know, you like to think that, that Kiwis are pragmatic and don't want young people to die. Uh, but also I think fundamentally there is a group out there that, that think a tough on approach, a tr- you know, tough on drugs approach is still the, you know, thing we should be doing. It is in fact likely that drug checking will take place at multiple local events this summer, and that some of it will involve an infrared spectrophotometer, a portable version of the drug analysis gear in a lab. A what now? Okay, reagent testing works like this: you take a small amount of a pill or powder, put it on a plate, put a drop of your reagent on it, and watch what colour it turns. Jenny Sibley, senior forensic scientist at ESR, explains. Okay, marquee colour test. Mm-hmm. It's actually a mixture of sulfuric acid and formaldehyde. Mm-hmm. So that goes orange for methamphetamine or amphetamine, um, black for MDMA and other methylene dioxy type things. Um, If it's methylone, which is BK MDMA, it will go like a fluorescent lime yellow green colour. 
Oh, goodness. Yes. <laughs> um, opiates like codeine and heroin go purple. Mm-hmm. So you have this range of things that you start to sort of recognise as you get experience of what things might be. But if, if you get a black colour, for instance, it can be masking other things as well. Right. So, you know, with black, it doesn't, it tells you what might be there, but it doesn't tell you what the other things that might be there ah, as well. right, yeah. Because yeah, it can mask it. But reagent testing will only cover a fraction of the hundreds of potential chemicals. It will really only tell you whether you have what you thought or not. It can be confounded by masking agents. It can't tell you anything about quantity or purity. And it may only flag one of multiple ingredients. Last year, for work, I obtained a pill purported to be MDMA and took it to ESR for testing. It contained four different drugs, all purchased via the so-called dark web, imported through the postal system and pressed locally. Using a mass spectrometer, ESR was able to provisionally identify two benzofurans, MAPB and APB, which are similar in effect to MDMA and MDA respectively, but less predictable and potentially more dangerous, especially in combination with alcohol or other drugs. There was also MXE, an analogue of ketamine, and 2-fluoromethamphetamine. The two benzofurans were sold as legal highs in Britain until mid-last year, and still are in many countries, but all four would be illegal under the very broad analogue provisions of our Misuse of Drugs Act. I passed on the results to local doctors and medical researchers, They'd never seen the benzofurans before. A spectrophotometer does the same job as ESR's mass spectrometer, but is more portable and designed for use in the field. A spectrophotometer works by shining light through a sample and matching the result on the other side with a library of drug profiles. A modern machine's library might contain more than 25,000 different profiles. Wendy Allison, who has been operating under the radar for years, says the cautious support offered by Peter Dunn has made her more optimistic. I was absolutely overjoyed when he publicly said that he felt that testing should be available at events because it shows that the government is beginning to come round to walking their talk, essentially. The national drug policy is very harm reduction focused. I was rapt to see that. And the cynic in me was going, well, OK, what does that actually mean? Testing, in my view, is a no-brainer. And they are, it looks like there's going to be some support. And what that has done from our end of things is that the event that we've been working with has gone from tolerating our presence to actually saying to me that they would like to be able to publicise the fact that we do this. It's... It's helping keep people safe. That event has not had a drug-related hospitalisation since we've been there. That doesn't guarantee that it won't happen, but that's what's happened. Um, Other events have become aware that this exists and we're now being approached by people who want us there. Everybody we've spoken to thinks it's a great idea and the only thing that's standing in the way is the political, legal authorities problem. There remain risks for festival promoters. Simply acknowledging the obvious out loud, some people take drugs at festivals, potentially puts them in breach of Section 12 of our Misuse of Drugs Act. Every person commits an offence against this Act, who knowingly permits any premises or any vessel, aircraft, hovercraft, motor vehicle or other mode of conveyance to be used for the purpose of the commission of an offence against this Act.
The maximum penalty for knowingly letting someone take drugs in your hovercraft is 10 years imprisonment. It's also possible that trying to do the right thing would breach the terms of festivals insurance. David Caldercott. And I think one of the ways that we're going to get into this space in a, in a meaningful way is to st- start talking about actuarial risk mitigation. So what is more risky, to have a, um, uh, a pill testing program on site or to not have a pill testing program on site? Um, and in fact, you know, in the end, these things always come down to funding and insurance. And when we sit down with the insurance companies and talk to them about what it actually means, it may be the case that uh, in the near future that insurance companies will start mandating uh, drug-checking facilities at, at music festivals. Mm. And yet you've got the New South Wales Premier, Mike Baird, uh, saying that, that they have a plan for drug-free festivals. That's not really going to happen, is it? Well, you know, unless they, they're running them for primary school kids, um, you know, the, the, the pro- your problem is, is that if you, um, if you police um, uh, music festivals with excessive force. Um, what happens is you drive them underground, and that's a catastrophe. Uh, at least um, in the current context, we know where music festivals are. We can plan medically for them. Um, you know, you have medical response teams there. You have ambulance there. The the sort of old school bush stuff that nobody knows about, and you find bodies. Uh, in a fortnight's time. That's what um, trying to police drugs out of music festivals um, results in. This is all at its heart, a replay of the arguments before needle exchanges were legalised in New Zealand 30 years ago. Drug checking and needle exchanges are both forms of harm reduction, a concept endorsed in the subtitle of our own national drug policy, which aims to, quote, minimise alcohol and other drug-related harm and promote and protect health and well-being. But our policy says one thing and our law says another. In the next and final episode of this podcast series, we'll travel all the way to the United Nations to look for the answers on drug law reform. But know this, when Tame and Parlour take the stage for their headline set at Laneway Auckland next month, a lot of people in the crowd are going to be high. We can only hope they know how high and why. From Zero is a seven-part podcast series for RNZ. You can subscribe or listen to every episode on iTunes or radionz.co.nz forward slash series. Don't forget to rate us. We're also on Spotify. This episode was produced by Russell Brown and engineered by Rangi Powick and Jeremy Ansell. The executive producers were Justin Gregory and Tim Watkin. Kakite anō. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.